0: Hello there and welcome to another episode of the Cultureverse podcast, the bi-weekly podcast where I discuss all things from the vast universe of popular culture. On the previous episode, I continued my series of the complete history of superhero cinema by talking about the entirety of the rocky Fantastic Four franchise. That brought us all the way from the early 80s to the modern day. Today, I want to go back and I want to start to round out the 90s movies I didn't get to before jumping into the Fantastic Four. Beyond that officially unreleased film... 1994 would see the official release of some other superhero films. Today, we're going to talk about the first of them, The Crow, and then we'll also talk about its three, yes, three sequels, and its television show. This will most likely be the longest episode I've done so far, I've tried to keep these hovering around the half hour mark, but I want to fit everything Crow related on screen into this one episode so I don't have to break it up. But Let's not waste any more time, and let's just get on with it. The Crow, starring Brandon Lee, is a cult classic gothic superhero movie based on the comic series of the same name from author James O'Barr. It follows rock musician Eric Draven, who on the one-year anniversary of his and his fiancée's death is granted a chance at vengeance by being resurrected by a magical crow spirit so he can hunt down and kill each of the men from T-Bird's gang who worked for the criminal kingpin top dollar they were all involved in his fiance's rape in both of their murders before we get to the films themselves i want to talk a little bit about the first one's background the whole thing was just surrounded by tragedy from its plot to the one i'm sure most of you know about that i will get to later to its invention in the first place in 1978 James O'Barr was enlisted in the United States Marine Corps, and while stationed in Germany was illustrating combat manuals for his fellow military servicemen. By 1981, he was living in Berlin, and he began work on his Crow comic as a way to cope with the death of his fiancé, who was tragically killed after being hit by a drunk driver just prior to his enlistment. Speaking to the Baltimore Sun in 1994, James said this, I tried all the typical angst-ridden outlets, like substance abuse and going to clubs or parties every night and just basically trying to keep yourself numb for as long of a period of time as possible. Eventually, I was smart enough to realize that that was a dead end, and so I thought perhaps putting something down on paper, I could exercise some of that anger. Another tragic event would help him further develop the storyline of his series. A newspaper from his hometown of Detroit detailed a couple who were brutally murdered over a $30 engagement ring. I thought it was outlandish, a $30 ring, two lives wasted. That became the beginning of the focal point and the idea that there could be a love so strong that it could transcend death, that it could refuse death, and this soul would not rest until it could set things right. O'Barr said this in a book about the movie's production called The Crow the Movie. The comic debuted in February of 1989, and as soon as it only having two issues out, interest was already there to develop it into a film. James was approached by a director, who wanted to buy all the rights to the Crow property in perpetuity for a one-time lump sum. Apparently, according to the man himself, he was planning on doing it as the money was good, but some of his friends managed to convince him to first at least consult with a Hollywood agent. He did, and that agent would then advise him against making such a move. So. He waited and held onto the rights, but he wouldn't have to wait long, however. Once the third issue of The Crow was released, he was approached once again, this time by writer John Shirley and producer Jeff Most. About meeting with the two interested parties, he said, Their enthusiasm convinced me that the film would be done correctly. Even though it was for far less what I had previously been offered, I wasn't selling out my copyright, and it was the best chance of the film turning out to be something I'd actually want to see. I just went with my instincts agreeing to the deal with shirley and most production on a film based upon obar's therapeutic piece of fiction would begin almost immediately a few changes would be made from the comic right away draven's drug abuse and self-harm were greatly toned down and it put a bigger emphasis on the love story between him and Shelley. and they made the crow an actual physical animal rather than a manifestation of eric's mind as it was in the initial comic They even gave him the last name Draven. He only went by Eric in the comics, and his last name wasn't even mentioned once. John Shirley continued to hone the script while Jeff Most would shop around the treatment to various Hollywood studios. That's where producer Ed Pressman would eventually agree to assist in making a Crow movie happen. For two years, the script would be worked on further, with further changes being made to the comics mythos. An older brother for Sarah was added and removed, Sarah herself was actually a change, as in the comics her name was Sherry, she was younger, and overall she played a much smaller role than she did in the final product. The Skull Cowboy, another manifestation of Eric's fractured psyche in the comic, is turned into a spirit guide. That character would eventually be cut from the final film, although he did actually have some scenes filmed, one of which can be found on YouTube, but it is in fairly low quality. At some point during the writing, Obar began feeling that they were taking one too many liberties with his work. He ended up writing a 10-page outline to explain his character's motivations, to help them really understand his vision. It was around this time that horror writer David J. Shao, at the time best known for writing the third Texas Chainsaw Massacre film and both the third and fourth Critter movies, joined the crew to do a rewrite in his words he told ed pressman that eric draven should be a gothic rock and roll terminator he would ultimately make numerous changes to the current script that shirley had shall cut numerous villains gave the ones left a chain of command to follow and he even added the devil's night motivation behind the initial attack on eric and shelley he also grounded the movie in detroit which apparently was a city that at the time experienced stuff like a shown in the film on the night before halloween A Detroit setting also served well because it's the creator, James O'Barr's hometown. With the script mostly finished, the producers already had their eyes on a director and a lead actor. Australian music video and commercial director Alex Proyas was wanted to direct The Crow, which would serve as his debut feature-length film. At the time, in 1991, Proyas was very sought after by different studios in Hollywood, but he was holding off on signing onto any projects until one felt right to him and The Crow would ultimately end up feeling that way. Brandon Lee, son of legendary actor and martial artist Bruce Lee, was always the first choice to play Eric Draven, although the crew admitted they did look at other options as well. In Pressman's words, We had considered some more established actors, and we were concerned that certain of these actors did not have the athletic ability. Other people had the athletic ability, but not the the acting talents. Brandon combined it all. When Brandon walked into this office, it was an immediate flash. We knew we had our Eric Draven that instant. After Lee had signed on to play the lead role, he immediately read the comic, and then he began working with Alex Proyas to implement parts of the comic that hadn't yet made it into the script. the script. The two worked together closely and took each other's feedback to heart. When Brandon asked for one particular character to be cut, an Asian character that would have stolen Eric's powers and was a Pretty on-the-nose, Ari- pretty on-the-nose Asian stereotype, he was. Now we come to the difficult task of getting the look of Eric Draven right. Ombar said that the inspiration for the iconic black and white face paint, a look I admittedly poorly replicated multiple times for Halloween in my days as a high school emo kid, was from a painting of a marionette mask that he saw on the side of a London theatre. I thought it'd be an interesting to have this painful face with a smile forcibly drawn on," the author said about the design. Reportedly nailing the makeup exactly how they wanted was a very arduous task. Applying the monochrome monochrome grease makeup took up to an hour. The film's special effects artist Lance Anderson created a rubber mask that had slips around the mouth and eyes so the black streaks could be applied easily and evenly. However, Brandon Lee, And the director were not fond of this overly professional look on the movies commentary track the director even said the first few times Brandon and I looked at it we were both really unhappy with it it was hard to get it to the point where it didn't feel self-conscious we were both happy with it when it was distressed he almost wanted to sleep in the makeup and then come to set the next day that's when it would look really great which a rumor I've heard floating around is that he actually did exactly that but I can't verify or speak to the legitimacy of that. Regardless, they eventually found a look that worked. One that looked good on film, but also looked like Eric Draven just slapped it on himself in the throes of grief. Combine that with the cobbled together, gothic style clothing Draven wears that gets more and more disheveled as the film goes on, and you have the iconic look of the cult classic character. A few other interesting things would happen during filming. For one, the actor lawrence mason who played one of the gang members responsible for eric and his fiance's death Tintin, actually learned how to legitimately fight with knives to get his choreography right also ravens were instead used ravens were used instead of crows for the film see crows are not birds that can be easily tamed in fact they're not usually fond of people at all and have even been well documented as being capable of holding grudges Seriously, look it up, crows are ridiculously intelligent and fascinating creatures, but despite that, they do not train well. Larry Madrid, the animal trainer for the film, made the decision that ravens would be a better fit, considering their equal intelligence, ability to be better trained, overall just not being as aggressive towards humans, and most people can't tell the difference between the two birds. These ravens would have to be trained to do multiple unusual things. For one, ravens are not nocturnal, so with the movie shooting at night, they had to be trained to be. On top of that, they had to learn how to fly in the rain and a wind tunnel, both unusual things for birds, and one of these five ravens also had to be trained to sit atop Brandon Lee's shoulder. Unfortunately, this is kind of where we leave the fun stuff behind for now. A few accidents would happen on the set of The Crow. One night a prop truck caught fire unexplainably, On the first day of shooting, a forklift operator was electrocuted to the point his organs were burned. A carpenter was also electrocuted on his hands, face, and chest. A member of the art department had a screwdriver stabbed straight through their hand. A stuntman fell through a rooftop set and broke multiple ribs. Unusual freezing temps and a hurricane hit, where they were filming in North Carolina. A sculptor for the film, either on accident or on purpose, depending on who you ask or what you read. Crashed their car into one of the movie sets, destroying it almost entirely. And of course, the part of the episode I've been dreading and trying to avoid for as long as possible, lead actor Brandon Lee, was tragically killed on set while filming. On March 31st, 1993, Brandon Lee walked into the EUE Screen Gems studio in Wilmington, North Carolina, for another day, for another day of filming the movie that should have served as his big break he would die that day two weeks prior to this a prop guy for the film visited a prop shop he purchased various various things for the production as well as a set of live rounds the live rounds were then stored in the prop master's car now of course real bullets real live bullets are obviously never used on a film set instead blanks and dummy rounds take their place now allow me to preface everything i'm about to say by saying that i am not a gun guy my knowledge of firearms basically began and ended with Call of Duty, nor am I a Hollywood prop master. But from my understanding, a blank is meant to simulate the muzzle flash, recoil, and sound of a gun shooting a bullet, without the actual projectile. Casings are instead fitted with a cardboard, plastic, or wood tip called a wadding that keeps the propellant in place, perfectly safe when used correctly and at a safe distance If the wood cardboard or plastic does happen to leave the gun's barrel it's not fatal however at close range blanks blanks can still be very deadly plus if anything happens to be lodged in the barrel of the gun the blank will still give it enough force to propel it out of the barrel towards whatever the gun is aimed at serving as a makeshift bullet a dummy round is exactly what it sounds like it's a bullet without any gunpowder essentially it's an empty shell in Hollywood, dummy rounds are used mostly for close-up shots, where you want to get a bullet that looks like a bullet. Realizing that they had no gu- no dummy rounds or blanks when they were attempting to film a scene in which someone stares down the barrel of a gun, the crew made their own out of those aforementioned live rounds in an attempt to save more time. They did this by removing bullets from... Li- by removing the bullets from live rounds, emptying out the powder charge, and then placing the bullet back into the empty round. Nobody on that crew knew this at the time, but they accidentally left some of the primer in the back of the shell. At some point during filming, the 44 Magnum Smith & Wesson Model 629 revolver was apparently fired with one of those improperly deactivated cartridges in its chamber, setting off the leftover primer with just enough force to push the bullet into its barrel, where it remained. This is referred to as a squib load. When this seemingly minor event happened, either nobody realized it, or they didn't understand the severity of what it could do. Some weeks after, that same gun would be used by, Mich- by Michael Massey's character Funboy. Although many people understandably assume a scene towards the end of the film where Lee's character is Relentlessly shot at by a whole crew of antagonists is what he was filming while he was fatally wounded. That's untrue. Instead he was filming a flashback scene. The original cut of the scene in which it showed the gang break into his apartment, assault Shelley, and shoot him. A blank was loaded into the gun for realism, and the gun would then be covered by a grocery bag. The plan was, towards the end of the scene, Massey, playing Funboy, would point the gun at Eric Draven and fire. Killing his character. Lee would then activate a blood packet and drop to the ground, completing the illusion. However, as previously noted, this was the same gun used weeks prior. The gun that had unbeknownst to Massey and Lee still had a lead cap in its barrel. And as I mentioned previously, blanks are safe when used carefully, but anything lodged in the barrel will still be propelled, and that's exactly what happened. The blank was fired sending enough power into the barrel to fire what was lodged in it at the unsuspecting Lee. Nobody realized what had happened at first, as again they were filming a scene where Brandon was meant to act as if he was shot, blood pack and all. It wasn't until the film's director called cut and Brandon didn't move, he, did he notice the quarter-sized hole in his abdomen. That's when the crew really began to take notice of something being seriously wrong. The stem of Lee's aorta that branches off to provide blood to the legs was punctured. He was rushed to the hospital right away, but despite their best efforts, the doctors could not save him. Brandon Lee tragically lost his life that afternoon. His young career snuffed out just as the life of the role he was playing was. He was just 28 years old. Now despite what you may have heard, this scene is absolutely not in the film. Hollywood can be crazy, yes, but it's not straight up psychotic. After this tragic loss of life, Paramount refused to distribute the film they'd previously agreed to. Miramax later would. After around six weeks off to grieve, deal with some of the fallout, and allow producer Ed Pressman to secure a further $8 million on top of its initial 15 to complete the film, they would do so with the blessing of Lee's family. Stuntmen Chad Stelhelski and Jeff Cadiente, would fill in to shoot the remaining scenes of Draven. Brandon Lee's face would then be digitally imposed on top of theirs in post for the close-ups. This was revolutionary technology at the time. There was never a question about the technical ability to finish the movie, Ed said. But there was a serious question psychologically, and it really revolved around Proyas. Alex at first did not want to go on with the film. He was destroyed by the accident, and so devastated he had no heart to continue. It was only because Eliza, Lee's fiance, and later the whole cast and crew appealed to him that he started to consider it. O'Barr, like a third of the movie's original crew, wouldn't return to the set. He later said, They asked me to come back. I told them no, that I couldn't imagine myself being back there without him. As an aside, Lee's death did lead to the protocols for prop gun safety on film sets being completely overhauled. So at least there's that. But this awful story stemming from this amazing film has been widely told, and while I hope I did it justice, I would like to discuss two facets of it I don't seem talked about nearly enough. To start, it's often glossed over that someone had to fire that gun. Someone had to come to work that morning, expecting to just shoot another scene for the film they had all been working on hardly for months. Someone without a clue in the world that on March 31st, 1993, he would accidentally kill a fellow human being, and that horrific burden would fall on the shoulders of Michael Massey, the actor portraying the character Fun Boy. Now, I want to make this abundantly clear. I'm not blaming anyone for the death of Brandon Lee, especially not Massey. He was just doing his job as an actor, and there was an entire cast and crew on the film, and every single one of them missed the fact that there was a lead cap stuck in the chamber, or in the barrel, rather. It was a freak accident. However, being the one who aimed, fired, and ultimately accidentally shot and killed Brandon Lee is something that has understandably weighed on the conscience of Massey for years. Following the accident at what would just be his second film, Massey would take an extended leave of absence from the acting world. In his own words from a 2005 interview with Extra, It absolutely wasn't supposed to happen. I wasn't even supposed to be handling the gun until we started shooting the scene and the director changed it. I just took a year off and I went back to New York and I didn't do anything. I didn't work. What happened to Brandon was a tragic accident and I don't think you ever get over something like that." And apparently that last sentence rang true. Michael Massey never truly did get over being the one to pull the trigger. He was plagued by nightmares for years and could never even bring himself to watch the beloved film he had, he had a hand in creating. And to make matters even worse, following the actor's death in 2016 after losing a battle to stomach cancer, despite appearing in dozens and dozens of roles since the incident, many tabloids reported on the actor's passing by referring to him as the actor who killed Brandon Lee. And I don't mean some BS celebrity news organizations like TMZ. I'm talking historically respected news companies like the New York Times, Variety, Deadline, The Hollywood Reporter, People, and even Extra, who Massey was gracious enough to open up to in that interview 11 years earlier, but anything for a catchy headline, right guys? I also want to speak briefly on the character's creator, James O'Barr. See, following Lee's tragic death, James felt bad profiting off of the death of a man who, while filming, he had become quite close friends with. Speaking at a 2009 convention, he said that he used some of the money he made from the film to buy his mother a car and to treat himself to a new surround sound system. And then he donated the rest. O'Barr would further state that I was really good friends with Brandon, so it just felt like blood money to me. I didn't want to profit at his expense. And I kept that secret for as long as I could. It's not charity if you get credit for it. James O'Barr by all accounts genuinely seems like such a good dude. Now I'm going to be honest here, I've thought of a way for a while to segue out of this, and I can't really think of a respectful way to do so, so I'll just say this and then we'll get back into the technical, more fun side of the franchise. The legacy of the Crow is something that will live on forever, in spite of the tragic events surrounding its creation. It's a darkly gorgeous piece of art, and nothing can take that away from the men and women who gave their blood, sweat, tears, and even their life for it. It's a haunting tale of love, loss, and tragedy, and the events that unfolded on March 31st, 1993, for better or for worse, further exemplify that. And in a morbid way, I think there is something really poetic, something honestly beautiful about that. To put it quite simply, I really do love The Crow. Now, moving on, despite what its dedicated fan base would lead you to believe, The Crow was not a blockbuster mega hit. It did well enough and became a sleeper hit and earning Miramax $93.7 million worldwide on its $23 million budget, which considering this was a movie based on a comic in 1994 that was only 5 years old, from a story that not many people had even heard about, this was good enough for a sequel to be greenlit. Although, with the death of the first film's star, some changes would have to be made. First of all, director Alex Proyas would not return, saying, I would have been delighted to make The Crow 2, if Brandon had been involved. Because of his work on the short thriller film Phone, Tim Pope would be hired to direct this sequel. Pope would originally try to collaborate with James O'Barr to pen a script, but O'Barr quickly realized that all he could think about was Brandon and told him he couldn't work on the film exiting the project but giving the sequel his blessing as long as they did something different with it that wouldn't be disrespectful to his friend's legacy. David S. Goyer, at the time best known for writing demonic toys, was brought aboard to direct or to write, sorry. The writer and director duo didn't want to do anything to upset the first film's dedicated following. So they would actually go on various message boards about the film and straight up ask what fans wanted. It quickly became clear that above all else, they wanted any potential sequel to respect Brandon Lee. The fans wanted something new, something different, not to recast Eric Draven and make a poorer version of his predecessor. The two would assure fans that their film would focus on a new character resurrected by the Crow, and would even take place in a different city. At one point, they even wanted to set it in an entirely different time period, planning to have it take place in Victorian London, which oh my god, yes, someone please give me a Victorian-era Crow film, like, immediately, that sounds amazing. This idea would be scrapped, however, at, at another time in the writing process, Sarah, the young girl who's friends with both Eric and Shelley in the first film, would have returned and became the new Crow, but that was also scrapped. Eventually, a story would be thought up that focused on two brothers, Michael and Danny Corvin. They're murdered... Michael would then be resurrected as the new Crow to avenge his and his siblings' deaths. Michael had his name switched to Ash, as the crew felt Michael Corvin sounded much too mu- way too much like Eric Draven, and the character of Danny would then be rewritten as his son. Sarah would also return as an ally and eventual love interest to Ash. With, with the script and characters hammered out, Alex McDowell, who worked on the previous, previous installment and with Tim Pope on various music videos, would return once again as a production designer. Aiming to give the film a unique and fresh look and not wanting to rehash the Detroit location, Alex took inspiration from the 1920s and 40s architecture for the film's alternate universe version of Los Angeles called The City of Angels, giving the movie its official title of The Crow City of Angels, which is a title I've always liked. Graham Revell, the composer from the first movie, also came back for the sequel alongside him. Ed Pressman and Jeff Mose would return to produce as well and wanting to give this film's characters more depth and make this follow-up installment even more tragic somehow. The lead character of Ash would be made a mechanic as a nod to Eric being one in the original comic he was changed to a musician for his movie and they'd use the poem from the comic one for sorrow two for joy which was cut from the first installment as well. Beyond those nods The crew would go to great lengths to differentiate him from Eric Draven. For one, there is the obvious accent, but that's more of a result of the actor who portrayed him rather than a conscious choice, but they'd also give Ash a dark sense of humor, showing him morbidly perform some magic tricks during fights and legitimately smiling. They would also make his fighting style less elegant, making Ash more of a grimy down and out brawler, rather than the expert martial artist Brandon Lee was swiss actor vincent perez would land the lead role of ash in his first american film role basing his performance off of jim morrison and hamlet and apparently beating out john bon jovi for the gig sarah would be originally offered to Toriamos, but she turned it down so it was then given to maya kershner the film's death obsessed main antagonist judah earl would be portrayed by richard brooks with the yellow ranger actress and i'm sorry this is one of those names i've seen written a lot but i've rarely actually heard spoken Thuy Trang as Callie, one of Judah's main henchmen and what would be her last film role as she was unfortunately killed in a 2001 car accident. Iggy Pop, who was offered the role of Fumboy in the first film but turned it down due to his touring schedule, would be cast in its sequel as another antagonist named Curve. Thomas Jane and Vincent Castellanos would also be cast as two more of Judah's lackeys named Nemo and Spider Monkey. At this point, everything was looking up, there was a solid script, and City of Angels was shaping up to be quite a good sequel. It had a good cast, and was seemingly something that could stand on its own while building upon what came before it, not just being an obvious money grab that's cashing in on the previous one. But then, Harvey goddamn Weinstein happened. Yep, that living human dumpster fire is one of the main reasons behind exactly what happened to this movie alongside his brother bob after filming wrapped pope showed his two and a half hour plus cut of the film focusing on this vision of tragedy and loss to the miramax owners harvey reportedly hated it and ordered the crew to make a multitude of changes to force the city of angels to be more like the previous installment despite it being both written and shot to be entirely different reshoots would take place some of which were just straight up copied from the last film. Over an hour of that initial version of the film was either scrapped or reshot, and the end result was then cut down from over 2.5 hours to just an hour and 24 minutes, meaning only a fraction of that original vision is present in the final product. The Crow City of Angels was released on August 30th, 1996, and while it did debut at number 1, it slumped fast. Earning less than half of what the Brain and Lee led one made domestically. Production designer Alex McDowell said this about the movie: "As I watch it again, there are such strong visuals in the film. It's a tragedy. That, it's a tragedy that it was so brutally hacked by the end that it was sort of incomprehensible. In the end, in the editing process, the film was turned into was an attempt to make the film into just a repeat of the first one." and the footage wasn't there, it wasn't designed to be that, and it wasn't filmed or written that way, and so it actually failed dramatically. And it was very disappointing to the people who were involved with the film. Despite, despite Pope, Goyer, and many people who worked on the film completely disowning it, when it was released on home video, it apparently featured an exclusive director's cut. That was just plainly untrue. Pope and Goyer's original vision is nowhere on the release, and all 10 minutes of added new footage is mostly just B-roll, further tricking fans who were already mad at being given the exact thing they did not want with a poor rehash of the first movie. It's literally almost just a carbon copy of the original with slightly different coat of paint. Man and a loved one get murdered. Man is resurrected. Is told he needs to seek revenge. Works his way up a Mortal Kombat tower, a Mortal Kombat tower-style level of increasingly tough baddies he gets to the big bad who runs the crime ring and rules over the city. He beats the villain and then he returns to the afterlife with his loved ones. But there is some new stuff, like Sarah having vision, she'd paint and be becoming Ash's love interest after discovering him, but ultimately it worked incredibly once, but you can't just cut and paste that magic again and again. If you look at what the film was supposed to be, it looks much better. Ash and his son accidentally witness a crime committed by Judah and his gang and are subsequently killed for seeing what they shouldn't have. Despite what happened in the first film, where Eric seemingly pulled the drugs from the veins of Sarah's mother, she still abandoned her child. Wanting to escape Detroit, where all this awfulness has surrounded her her life, she eventually winds up in the City of Angels. The visions and the painting stuff remained. After discovering Ash, Sarah straight up shanks him in the chest. When he won't believe her that he's dead, and that he's also been resurrected. Which, I mean, can you really blame him? But this is why in the film, when he's running from her apartment, you can see him clutching at his chest. Eventually, Sarah is able to track him down and explain to him what he has to do. That part remained in the theatrical cut, she is the one to explain to him in both versions. But, in between murdering members of Judah's gang, that killed him and his son, he starts to form a connection with Sarah, forming a bond. And then Judah kidnaps her. That's when we actually get some villain motivation. It's discovered that Judah drowned as a child and was clinically dead for five minutes. When dead, he went to hell. And he brought that knowledge back with him when he was revived. That's why he became a masochist. And it's it makes the retort when Ash tells him to go to hell actually make a lick of sense. He says, already been there, and I must confess, I like what I saw. He informs Sarah that Ash is Death, and he knew Death would eventually try to catch up with him, but he plans to beat it by becoming Death himself. He traps and kills the crow, cutting Ash's connection to the afterlife. Ash's son Daniel then appears and tells him that fact, and he also tells him that if he doesn't leave right away, he'll be left on earth forever, unable to ever see his son again. Ash stays to save Sarah. Judah consumes the crow's blood giving him its spiritual powers. With Ash weakened but still unable to die, Judah begins to torture him. When Sarah tries to stop this, Judah stabs her. Which is when Ash sends out a flock of cr- a flock of crows to eat Judah whole. Now in the theatrical cut, this looks like a blurry, very poorly done effect, but in the original cut, apparently the crows ate him down to a skeleton. Now, with Sarah bleeding out from her wounds, She begins to die in ash's arms a symbolic match to the painting of sarah's vision shown earlier in the film he tells her she can't die his link to the afterlife is severed and he stayed on this earth to be with her she retorts that if two people love each other nothing will keep them apart she says she'll wait for him forever if she has to before handing him the ring eric gave to her ash with nowhere else to go is left to walk the earth alone forever with the two people he's ever loved not by his side and honestly bums me out how much better that sounds than what we got there was such a masterful film in there just plastered over by Hollywood execs who think they know more about art than the damn artists you wouldn't tell Van Gogh how to paint you wouldn't tell Donatello or Michelangelo how to make a statue you, just, you don't tell a director how to direct it's annoying and it honestly is a damn tragedy in its own right. I have no idea if the cutscenes still exist, but greedily I want a real director's cut of this film, like yesterday. There are many companies like Arrow, Criterion, and Shout Factory that specialize in remastering and re-releasing films with loads of extras and additions. Mill Creek is actually another good one. It would be amazing if one of them could get on this at all if it's possible. I would buy it. now. There would surprisingly actually be a TV series and two more Crow films following the disaster that was City of Angels. The Crow, Stairway to Heaven, is a Canadian-made drama base, based on the Crow property and created by Bryce Zapple, who also had a writing credit on Mortal Kombat Annihilation, so make of that what you will. It was, syndicated, it was a syndicated television show that debuted on September 25th, 1998 and served as not so much a sequel, but more of a retelling of the film and comic that, due to its episodic format, had the benefit to really flesh out the universe. The synopsis will sound fairly similar at first. Rock musician Eric Draven is, and his fiancée Shelley are murdered by a gang led by T-Bird who worked for Top Dollar. He's resurrected by the crow spirit, not fully alive, but not fully dead either. He now possesses increased strength, reflexes, he can regenerate wounds, and For all intents and purposes, he's essentially immortal. Characters like Sarah, the teenage girl who became friends with Eric and Shelley to escape her addict mother, and said mother's absolutely amazing boyfriend, and Officer Albrecht, the cop who assisted Eric upon his return from the dead, would also return to the series from the movie. There would be some differences, however. For one, the show was made for Canadian network television in the late 90s in a primetime slot, and our rating would not have flown. So, the show was made with a PG-13 rating instead. The violence was obviously toned down, but so were some other things. Sarah's mother, for instance, isn't a drug addict, she's an alcoholic. Because in the late 90s, that was more acceptable, apparently. The relationship between Sarah's mom and Fumboy also shows slightly more of an abusive tone, rather than her being a very active participant as she appeared to be in the film. The show is also narrated by Eric and Shelley rather than Sarah. I think the biggest change would be to Eric Draven's Javen, motivation to return, however. As you know, in the first film, he returns with a vengeance. He seeks revenge on all those who took his fiance and his life away from him. But in Stairway to Heaven, that motivation was tweaked to one of redemption. Eric is unable to find peace in the afterlife with Shelley and he must return to the land of the living to redeem his own soul. A couple other changes that i actually really like are one the skull cowboy who was cut from the original film but does have a role in the comics makes his on-screen debut for the series serving as the spirit guide to eric draven even being the one advising him against revenge and to instead seek redemption and two there is a female crow in the show as well for two episodes hannah foster or talon returns from the dead following the murder of her and her daughter Unlike Draven, who quickly realized that the path of revenge wasn't the one he should go down, Talon is shown to constantly struggle between revenge and her own redemption. She's also shown to be far more ruthless and brutal than Draven is. The main cast would consist of Mark Gomes playing Officer Albrecht, Katie Stewart would play Sarah with Linda Boyd portraying her mother, Sabrina Crescenti as Shelley, John Piper Ferguson, John Tank, and I Olison, would be cast as Top Dollar, T-Bird, and Fun Boy, Hannah Foster aka Talon would be portrayed by Bobby Phillips, and of course we now come to Eric Draven. Who was given the monumental task of following Brandon Lee's portrayal of the character? Well, That task would fall on Hawaiian born actor and martial artist Mark Dacascos. Modern moviegoers may recognize him as the Assassin Zero from the third installment of the John Wick franchise. Now I'll be straight up, obviously I prefer Brandon Lee's iconic portrayal, but Mark is in no way bad. He, was the, he has the acting chops for one, having had over 20 various roles at the time he was cast, and for two, he is also a professionally trained and even competing martial artist. Not only is he proficient in Muay Thai, Capyara, and Wushu, but he is also proficient, proficient in the style his father, Al, Desc- Al Dacascos, invented, Wun Hop Kwon Do. A branch of the Hawaiian hybrid martial art known as Kajukenbo that encompasses parts of Karate, Jujutsu, Judo, Boxing and many more. It's to my understanding that when Kajukenbo was being invented anything that had the ability to consistently work in a real life fight or against each other would stay in the art system. So if they were ever going to use the Eric Draven character on screen again following Lee's passing, a guy like Mark Dacascos is a great choice to do so. I also very much appreciate that they made this take a bit different for Stairway to Heaven. They didn't just try to copy and paste what Brandon did and have someone else on the makeup to do a cheap imitation. Mark's version of Draven is less ruthless, less vengeful. We get to see a melancholier and more world-weary approach to Draven that's more focused on redeeming himself and his own misdoings. That viciousness really only comes out in sudden, impactful bursts when he fully unleashes the crow, cause that's another unique thing the show does. Eric isn't always the crow 100% of the time, it's an alter ego he can tap into when necessary. It's that other side of him that you don't want to see if you're at all in his way. Heck, they even tried to change up the makeup a bit by not using the ghostly white under the black lips and eyes, instead just having the black lines on the eyes and mouth on Dacascos' plain face. While the show has its issues, such as the pilot episode just being a poor supercut of the first movie, and lacking the heavy gothic aesthetic and overall atmosphere of that film, also clearly not having even a quarter of its budget, it's still a pretty good take on The Crow that has the advantage of having more time to really dig deeper into the mythology of The Crow and flesh out that universe that Brandon Lee's film introduced so many of us to. Especially when you take into consideration the issues I just mentioned, and that it was made for syndicated Canadian television, despite its deficiencies and not surpassing that movie, famous movie in any way, it's a show I can actually recommend if you can manage to find it. It's pretty good. The Crow: Stairway to Heaven, which filmed in Vancouver, British Columbia, ran for one season of 22 episodes from September 25, 1998, to May 22, 1999, before ultimately being canceled. It had good reviews and pretty solid ratings, but the distribution company PolyGram was sold to Universal, who would make that decision. The show's producers did originally plan to make a TV movie that would cap off the series and tie up any loose plot points, because, warning, the first and only season ends on a cliffhanger, but that idea would ultimately never come to fruition. However, a new installment in the Crow movie franchise would debut less than a year later on January 23rd, 2000, with the release of The Crow Salvation. Now, I remember many moons back. I was digging through the bargain DVD bin at Walmart to see just what I could find on the cheap. Lo and behold, I pulled out a case that advertised four Crow movies. Four? I thought to myself, there cannot be four freaking Crow movies. I loved the first one, I'd seen the second one. But i had no knowledge of there ever being another one let alone two so i bought it then and there five dollars for four crow movies two of which were brand new to me i was stoked i sat down that night and watched them all back to back to back to back and i can say with absolute certainty that salvation is the best crow film that doesn't feature brandon lee don't get me wrong it's not groundbreaking and it's easy to see why it went straight to dvd after a very limited theatrical run it is still good though and it does the one thing I appreciate, that I think any and all crow media should do, and that's be different. Show different sides to this universe, different characters, with the only common thread being the tragedies and being inhabited by the crow. The film was directed by British Indian film director Bharat Nulari, who later direct the actually really good historical drama The Man Who Invented Christmas, about Charles Dickens' writing process for A Christmas Carol. And it starred Eric Mabius as the newest man to be inhabited by the Crow, Alex Corvus. Corvus was a convict on death row for a crime he did not commit, the murder of his wife Lauren. His wrongful execution takes place three years later and goes horribly wrong. After giving his last words, expressing his love for Lauren, and once again proclaiming his innocence, the electric chair is turned on. However, a bolt of lightning strikes the generator, and he dies, slowly and painfully, from the malfunction it caused. Alex is then resurrected and given the powers of the Crow that you all know by now. This way, he can clear his name and avenge his wife's death. He'd attempt to accomplish this with the aid of Lauren's sister, Erin, after convincing her of his innocence. She was played by a pre-Spider-Man, post-Small Soldiers cursed and dunced. The film takes place in Salt Lake City, Utah, and follows corrupt cops, drug smuggling, and even ups the gore a bit. It does what it should and sets itself apart from what came before, and although Alex Corvus is no Eric Draven, can't lie, I quite like it. The name Alex Corvus, by the way, is a smart play on words. See, crows belong to the family of birds known as Corvidae. That family encompasses the genus Corvus that houses those birds as well as ravens, and I love stuff like that. There would be one more movie in the crow franchise titled the crow wicked prayer it was released june 3rd 2005 at the amc pacific place theater in seattle where it would play for a week and would then go straight to dvd in july it starred young john connor from terminator 2 himself edward furlong as the crow or jimmy cuervo the cuervo being spanish for crow and has a completely off the wall plot which considering the franchise we're talking about here is really saying something wicked prayer follows jimmy a man on parole following his prison sentence for killing a rapist in a fight while living with his dog in a mobile home in in lake ravasu on the raven aztec reservation he begins planning to start a new life and leave the whole town behind him with his girlfriend lily unfortunately as you can probably expect Things don't quite get that far, as the two lovers are kidnapped by an escaped con named Luke Death Crash, his fiancée Lola Byrne, and their three buddies, legitimately named Pestilence, Famine, and War. Bit on the nose with the whole Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse thing, no? Lola and her husband-to-be, Death, would sacrifice Lily and Jimmy and hopes to bring forth the Antichrist. To accomplish this, they remove Lily's eyes and Jimmy's heart before they dump the bodies inside an old freezer. And that's where Jimmy Quarvel is resurrected as the new crow to exact his revenge on the ever so edgy biker gang. Side note if your last name has anything to do with crows, you might want to play it safe and assume that something brutal might happen to you at some point. Despite the entertaining sounding premise, Wicked Prayer isn't all that great. It's still okay. I enjoyed it during my crowathon. Again, especially as far as direct DVD movies go, those things usually aren't going to be up for an Oscar at any point, so you have to keep that in mind. But it's probably the second weakest of the crow of the four crow films. City of Angels is worse to me just because I know what it was supposed to do and what it was supposed to be, and it was theatrical. Wicked Prayer knew that it was never going to compare to the original and doesn't even attempt to. And that's the end of the franchise on screen for now. However there are at least two cancelled or still stuck in development films that I'm aware of. Before he made his directorial debut with House of a Thousand Corpses, Rob Zombie was supposed to make it with a third Crow installment, a sequel to City of Angels in the late 90s called The Crow 2037 A New Age of Gods and Monsters, which is a very Rob Zombie type title. Nobody besides Rob and anyone who might have worked on it with him knows exactly why it was never made, But in an interview with Shudder, he said that it was better that it wasn't because at the time he wasn't prepared to do what it would have taken to make it right. Zombie did write a script, however, and it began on Halloween in 2010 with a boy and his mom being murdered by a satanic priest. Eventually, the boy would be resurrected as the new vessel of the Crow to seek revenge. The Crow 2037 script was apparently reworked into a standalone film at some point, but that also never materialized. You can find Rob Zombie's full script online if you're interested in his contents, but I mean if a, if a crow movie like Wicked Prayer can happen, then I don't really see an issue with the uh, new age of Gods and Monsters, I'd like to see it, I would like Rob Zombie's style, it sounds interesting. And then we come to the proposed reboot that has been lingering in development hell for well over a decade now. It's 2008, Death Machine director Steven Norrington, in an interview with Variety, Made the announcement that he had plans to write and direct a quote reinvention of the Crow, emphasizing the differences between the 1994 film and what his take would be by saying, "Whereas Proyas's original and glo- original was gloriously gothic and stylized, the new movie will be realistic, hard-edged, and mysterious, almost documentary-style." Ryan Kavanaugh then announced in the winter of 2009 that his company, Relativity Media was negotiating with Ed Pressman for the film's rights. Norrington at some point left the project that he announced in April of 2011. It was announced that director of one of the best modern zombie films, 28 weeks later Juan Carlos Fresnadillo was chosen to direct, and Bradley Cooper was in discussions to play the lead role. It was reported on April 20th, 2011 that the project was undergoing some legal battles, but by late June, Relativity and Relativity announced their plans to continue and that they'd hired Alex Say, who co-wrote the Watchman film adaptation from Zack Snyder, to write on this new Crow installment. In mid-August 2011 Bradley Cooper left the lead role because of scheduling conflicts, and Mark Wahlberg, who was originally in talks for the lead in 2010 before it was given to Cooper, was again being taken into consideration, alongside rumors of Channing Tatum, Ryan Gosling, or James McAvoy may be taking on the role. Which honestly, I'm glad none of this happened, because I just can't see any of them as Eric Draven, maybe McAvoy, but I'm, I, I still don't really see it, and no disrespect to any of them as actors, they're all fine in their own right, but I just can't see them pulling that role off. In October 2011, it was reported that Fresno Dillo departed the project. Then in January, or the following year, it was confirmed that Javier Gutierrez, had signed on to direct the remake and both ed pressman and jeff most were returned to produce june 2012 pressman told fans that the original 1994 crow film holds a special place in my heart the current film is a reinvention of james O'Barr's graphic novel for the 21st century we're thrilled to have teamed with director javier gutierrez and screenwriter jesse wugatau on this story which remains true to the core of eric draven's plate for revenge Obar himself, however, said, "...I don't have great expectations. I think the reality is, no matter who you get to star in it, or if you get Ridley Scott to direct it, and spend $200 million, you're still not going to top what Brandon Lee and Alex Proyas did in that first $10 million movie." Then, on April 19th, 2013, Tom Hiddleston was reported to be in talks to play Eric Draven. Later that month, reports came out saying that Hiddleston would not be in the film, and instead alexander skarsgard was being eyed for the part but then a week later skarsgard said he also wasn't attached to the film on may 4th 2013 deadline put out a report that luke evans was given the role of eric draven weirdly he starred in the raven the year before evans confirmed all the speculation too and even assured fans that the film would be as faithful as possible to the original then seemingly to solidify that in july of 2013 creator James O'Barr was brought on to be the creative consultant for the reboot. Then that November, it was rumored that Norman Reedus was cast as a character named James. Kristen Stewart was also being rumored to be in consideration for the role of Shelley. After almost a year of nothing, the studio hired Coran Hardy to direct as Gutierrez left at some point. At that point, Luke Evans told Den Den of Geek in an interview that he might not even do the film. And then later, he did drop out of the movie due to uh, other projects. As of October 2014, the film was set to start production in the spring of 2015. On February 9th, 2015, Obar told Blaster in an interview that he was interested in in Sam Witwer for the role. But then, just over two weeks later, on February 25th, it was reported that Jack Huston would be starring as Eric Draven. Obar confirmed that the Lexington comic and toy convention that this was true and that jessica brown finley had been cast as shelley webster as well a couple months after that deadline reported that andrea risborough was in talks with the studio to play a female version of top dollar and then on june 15th 2015 variety issued two stories one saying that Forrest whitaker was up for a role and the other saying that chuck huston had left the role of eric draven behind once again due to scheduling conflicts But, they also said that Relativity Studios were now eyeing Nicholas Holt or Jack O'Connell to replace him. But a month and a half later, The Hollywood Reporter reported that production was now stalled because of Relativity's recent bankruptcy. James O'Barr said in an interview with ComicBook.com that it was still for sure going to happen. And if you thought stuff was already jumping around at a rapid pace before, let's jump into 2016 and beyond. The rap reported that filming on the reboot was going to start in March 2016 with Corin Hardy on board as director, but nothing happened. A leading actor wasn't even announced. Then in June, Deadline reported that Hardy was still attached to direct. Two months of silence later, and Jason Momoa posted a picture of himself sporting the famous crow makeup with Hardy on Instagram, leading to fan speculation that he may be the new Eric Draven. A couple weeks later on September 6, 2016, the Wrap reported that Momoa was in fact cast as Draven, confirming the speculation, and they announced that filming would begin in January of 2017. On November 17th, The Hollywood Reporter published a story saying that a Highland Film Group, Davis Films, and Electric Shadow acquired the rights to finance, produce, and distribute the new Crow installment, now going by the title of The Crow Reborn, from Relativity. But they could lose both another lead actor in Jason Momoa and another director in Hardy. Then, again, nothing. Filming did not begin in January of 2017, and things were pretty silent until September of 2017 when it was announced that Sony would distribute the film. But then, as you all probably expect by now, you've seen the routine, nothing happened. Nothing happened until May 31st of the following year when it was announced that director Corin Hardy and star Jason Momoa had both exited The Crow Reborn, leaving its future completely up in the air. Now, I still don't think that Jason would have ever touched what Brandon Lee captured, but out of all the actors that this planned film had cycled through, I think he probably would have been the best. After his exit, Momoa posted this on Twitter. I've waited 8 years to play this dream role. I love you Corin Hardy and Sony Pictures, but unfortunately, I may have to wait 8 more. Not our team, but I swear I will. James O'Barr, sorry to let you down, I won't on the next. This film needs to be set free, and to the fans, sorry, I can't play anything but what this film deserves, and it needs love. I'm ready when it's right, love you Corin, Aloha." This not only insinuates that he had been wanting the lead role since reboot was announced since before it was even given to bradley cooper but that the film had been put on the back burner because something wasn't right there was something not working for those involved be it a script the budget or whatever else so they decided to just not do it at that time which i can respect and that's where things stayed for nearly two years but then in january of 2020 bloody disgusting reported that electric shadow davis films and the highland film group were still pursuing the project but noted that this reboot of the reboot would be based more off of James O'Barr's original comic rather than just remaking the 94 film, which personally I feel like is a much better way to do it instead of trying to imitate something that has such a dedicated cult following and a passionate fanbase. A year later, and that's where things have kind of plateaued. There's been no word on a director, a lead actor, a writer, or even if it's in early pre-production or anything like that. At the time of this recording in 2021, the future of this reimagining of the crow still looks very uncertain. In my mind, if there's going to be another film, I'd like it to either be based solely on the comics or be a new character having the crow mantle altogether. Either one of the many great ones from the comics or a brand new character made specifically for the film. You can have someone who can play the crazy and unhinged side well like Evan Peters see many American Horror Story seasons or maybe focus on, the more mar- focus on the martial arts more and have someone like Joe Taslim play him who had a role in legitimately one of the best action movies ever made in The Raid and is just about to get his chance to really show off his skills to a western audience when the Mortal Kombat film releases in which he plays the best ninja Sub-Zero. My first choice for director would be Lee Whannell, if you've seen his techno body horror upgrade to do such a unique and amazing way of filming action scenes that I just love and I think would work very, very well with the martial arts. And his horror chops with being a writer for the best films in the Insidious and Saw franchises could really help with the darker, more melancholic and scary aspects of the film. Neil Blomkamp, Blomkamp would be a great choice as well, especially if they choose to shoot it like District 9, more grounded and on the, like, gritty. Or Michael Dougherty, who made my favorite movie, Trick or Treat, would be a great choice. I feel like they could really bring something unique to a Crow movie that could further differentiate it from what came before. And that's where today's Crow-centric episode will finally come to a close. Let me know your opinions on all four of these films and the TV series. Do you think a reboot should happen? Why or why not? If so, who do you think should write, star, and direct? If you have any suggestions for subjects or for the podcast as a whole, you could find me at cultureversepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the latest episode, and I'll see you in two weeks for another discussion from the universe of popular culture, where we'll hopefully conclude the 1990s and possibly open up the new millennium. And hey, despite the way the world seems sometimes, especially with the state of it right now, just remember this. It can't rain all the time.